going to begin a new sermon series this month for the, the month of November. Our Christmas series will begin the first Sunday in December. I know that there are some of you who seem to think that Christmas begins the day after Halloween. You are bad people. I'm just kidding. Please don't be offended. Uh, maybe a little. Uh, November is for Thanksgiving, December is for Christmas. Well, at Thanksgiving, if you're hosting Thanksgiving at your house, one of the things you've got to remember to do is you've got to remember to preheat the oven. Because if you don't do that, uh, your meal will be delayed. It could ruin the whole, uh, the whole family get-together. And so this November, what we're going to do is we're going to preheat Christmas. And what I mean by that is we are going to prepare our hearts to receive what God has for us this Christmas season. You see, Christmas didn't come out of nowhere. The first Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is a part of a story that had been in motion for thousands of years. And so we're going to spend some time thinking through that story. And in doing so, we're going to prepare ourselves to receive the gift of Christmas. So I have the honor of kicking off the series today. Uh, several weeks ago, a couple of months ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to Israel with our church. Uh, Pastor Mark led that trip, and it was an incredible experience. Uh, the difficulty is that we had to leave our kids behind for two weeks, and that's particularly challenging for people who are in my life stage. Um, and so for 10 days, my parents came in clutch. They came and grandparents watched the kids for 10 days. Now, I'm not a grandparent, so I don't know, but what has been communicated to me is that one of the best parts of being a grandparent is that you have the chance to just spoil your kids rotten, uh, your grandkids rotten, and when they become rotten, you send them home. <laughs> now, the problem with that is if you're watching them for 10 days. You don't have the, the opportunity to send rotten kids home, it, it kind of shifts the dynamic a little bit, and I'm sure that was challenging. Another challenging thing for my parents for those 10 days is they had to get my kids to all the things. So you had to get them to school in the morning, you had to pick them up from school in the afternoon, and then all of the activities after school. Um, I, I have three kids, and they're all involved in stuff, uh, sports and those kinds of things. Uh, well, the Saturday uh, that we were gone, my youngest daughter had a soccer game, and my mother had to take my daughter to her soccer game, just the two of them, and they, they drove that way. Now, the soccer field that she plays these games at, it's a little bit challenging to get to. It's not really a straightforward place. And so uh, she just plugged it in her phone, and she had a pretty good idea of where to go. Uh, the problem was is that the, the app was taking her uh, a different way than we normally go. So my daughter in the back seat starts to recognize, this is new. I haven't seen us go this way before. And so she starts to question are you sure you know where you're going? You know, this isn't the way. And finally, she'd had enough, and she said, call Papa. He knows where to go. That's what they call my dad. See, the little one in the back seat was worried because she didn't know that the one in the driver's seat had a plan in place. There was always a plan in place. And we look at our world to today and it looks like we don't know where we're going. 
We can think about uh, global issues like wars and rumors of wars and hunger and national, uh, natural disaster and, and oppression and injustice. We could think about uh, more regionally um, in, in our community, we could think about how the economy is causing prices to go through the roof and everything's more expensive and that causes all kinds of problems for us or, or maybe there's uh, anxiety. I know in our community, divorce is is rampant, and these kinds of things that we see in our region. Or you might even consider some of the problems that you might have in your own life. Maybe it's problems with relationships, or maybe you're dealing with an illness, or job loss, or anxiety, mental health stuff. Or, you know, in our, in our church, we've had a lot of, of the death of loved ones that has been going on for the last couple of months. And And that's a challenge. And in our world, we sometimes wonder, is there a plan in place? Is the one in the driver's seat, does he really know where he's going? And when we ask that question, we have this anger that boils right beneath the surface. We have this anxiety that wants to start here and rise up. Or or we try to manipulate situations so that the outcome is what we think is best. Because we wonder if the one who's driving knows where he is going. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 uh, for a minute, and then we're going to move from there. But Matthew chapter 1 is where you should start, and that's where we find Jesus' genealogy. And what we're going to see in Jesus' genealogy is that, yes, the one in the driver's seat knows where he's going. And so we're going to read this together, but I need to give you a disclaimer. We really are going to read verses 1 through 17, and it's a bunch of names. Uh, and so we're going we're to roll through it. Well, here's what I want you to do. Number one, I want you to see as we read through this almost tedious list that there is, is an unbroken line from Abraham to Jesus. And then I want you to also look for some names you recognize and kind of file that away and think of some stories that you know about these people. But buckle up. We're going to move really fast. Okay? Are you ready? Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abiah, and Abiah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, 
And Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, now, why in the world, if we're going to preheat ourselves for Christmas, why in the world are we going to read a list of names? Well, what's happening here is in this list of names, Matthew is giving us a fast-forwarded version of the Old Testament. He's telling us the story of the Old Testament in a very quick way, and in so doing, he's showing us that the Old Testament only makes sense if it's fulfilled in Jesus. There is a tedious, unbroken line from Abraham to Jesus, and you see it in these names. Now, as we think about this genealogy, it can be divided into three sections, and there are two, besides Jesus, there are two names that really set this, uh, these divisions off. You have Abraham and you have David. Abraham and David are two of the main pillars that hold up the structure of the Old Testament story. And Matthew wants to show you that Abraham and David point to Jesus. We see in verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word genealogy, literally in the Greek, is the word genesis. It means beginning. So Matthew intends to show us in his book, in his gospel, he intends to show us who Jesus is, where he came from, what he has done, what it takes to be his follower. And in order to do that, he starts by pointing us literally back to Genesis. And so we're going to look at this together. We're going to consider Abraham, and then we're going to consider David. And as we consider that, we should remember that there has always been a plan in place. And we're going to see what that plan is. We're going to begin with this man, Abraham. And you can write, if you're taking notes, you can write Abraham, and then you can write blessing for the curse. Blessing for the curse. One of the most significant things that you can know about Abraham is the promises given to him in Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to look at that. If if you wanted to flip over, you could. It'll be on the screen. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham kind of appears out of nowhere in the story, appears out of a genealogy, but then we get a whole story about him. The Lord appears to him and says, go to a land I will show you. And then He starts listing these promises in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 2. The Lord says to Abraham, he says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. And then down in Verse 6, there's another promise. It says, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, there were Canaanites in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I give this land. So these promises, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I'll bless those who bless you, those who curse you. I will curse. I will bless all families of the earth 
through you and to your offspring, the Lord promises to Abraham the land of Canaan. Now, I want you to see that these promises in Genesis 12, they don't come out of nowhere. They actually are an answer. They're a solution to the problem with the world. Now, what is the problem with the world? In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we get the story of creation. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates sun and moon and stars. He creates the universe. He creates the earth, trees and rivers and oceans and mountains and animals and birds and fish. But the crown jewel of his creation is mankind. He created man in his image, male and female. He created them. He creates them in the image of God, and he commissions them and blesses them, and he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He plants them in a garden and commissions them to work and to keep this garden. He says, you you can eat from any tree in this garden except for the one. If you eat of this one, then you shall surely die. It's in this garden that that Adam and Eve understand what it's like to have this perfect, intimate relationship with God. Their souls are satisfied. They are living in a state of delight. It's in this garden that they would meet with God himself. And that way, the Garden of Eden kind of serves like a temple where God and man can meet together. The Garden of Eden is heaven on earth. And then in Genesis chapter 3, disaster strikes. You see, the woman is deceived by the serpent, and she eats of the fruit of which God said, you shall not eat. And then he gives some of this fruit to her husband, who was with her, and because of this, God doles out judgment on the serpent, on the woman, on the earth, on the man. There's judgment. The judgment for the serpent is that there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman forever. And and the seed of the serpent will bruise the seed of the woman, bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. And then the earth, uh, the Lord condemns, he, he judges the earth, and he says, That the fall is the reason that there are like destructive weather events and diseases and broken relationships, injustice, sin in our world, death in our world. All of that exists because of what took place in Genesis chapter 3. Worst of all, what the Lord does is he exiles Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden away from his presence. So this is the curse of sin. This this is the curse. Death, difficulty, and exclusion from the presence of God himself. So then, after Genesis chapter 3, beginning in Genesis 4, the story begins to trace uh, the story of humanity. What will become of the people that God made? 
Will they ever find God's blessing again? They're living under a curse. Will they ever find his blessing again? Well, we we follow the story from Genesis 4 all the way to Genesis 11, and here's what we see. Immediately after Adam and Eve leave the garden, we, we get a story that they have some children, but one of them named Cain kills another one named Abel. He murders his brother, and then the story follows the line of Cain, and we see it's full of wickedness and violence. And things get bad to worse, and it it continues in this downward spiral where things get so bad that God says, I will not contend with man forever. As a matter of fact, the Lord intends to send a flood to wipe out every living creature on the earth, except for Noah. Noah was righteous in the eyes of the Lord, and Noah obeys God, and he builds this boat, preserving human life on the earth. But things spiraled downward even more again. And the people that God made, they come together and they want to build a tower to the heavens. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They don't want to disperse. They gather together in disobedience and they build this tower. They say, we're building this tower to make a name for ourselves, a tower of their pride. Well, God won't have any of that. And he, he comes down and he confuses their language. And they can't finish their building project, and they do disperse over the face of the earth. So Genesis 11 ends with this question, will the blessing ever be restored to mankind? Or will mankind only live under the curse forever? Genesis 12, enter Abraham. The promises of Genesis 12 to Abraham show us that God does have a plan in place from the beginning. Abraham and his descendants are the answer to the problem with the world. I want to point out to you that in Genesis 1 through 11, the Hebrew word for curse is used five times. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the Hebrew word for blessing is used five times. One blessing overcoming one curse five times. There is a plan in place. The one in the driver's seat knows exactly where he's going, and God's plan for humanity is to replace the curse with the blessing. How does he intend to do this? By fulfilling these promises in Genesis chapter 12 that he gives to Abraham. That's how he's going to do it. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless all families of the earth through you, Abraham. God does. He begins to keep some of these promises in Abraham's lifetime. Abraham becomes a powerful chieftain in the land. He's only a sojourner there, a visitor, and yet he becomes mighty and powerful. He acquires many possessions. God makes him great in the land. He gives him a son, even in his own age. He gives him a son, Isaac. But some of the promises won't be fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. As a matter of fact, there are some of these promises that are going to take thousands of years to be fulfilled now i told you we're only preheating christmas here but once again i i can't really uh help myself too much because here's what's happening we can draw a line directly from this promise to abraham to jesus can't we 
that how are all families of the earth going to be blessed through Abraham? Because Abraham's going to have a son, and his name's Isaac, and we're going to follow that line all the way to a person named Jesus, the greater son of Abraham, Abraham's offspring. And all families of the earth are blessed in him, because here's what we find out in the New Testament, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. No matter what family you're a part of, you will be saved. As we consider Abraham here in this genealogy, we can conclude God has a plan for the world, and that plan is a blessing instead of a curse. Well, there's a second important name in Matthew 1 that I'd like to take a peek at. It's David. You know, Matthew doesn't draw the line directly from Abraham to Jesus. He, he makes little pit stops along the way, and then he, he, go, he, he camps out a little bit on another name, and it's David. So for David, you can write his name down. You can write David, and then you can write down a king and a kingdom. A king and a kingdom. You know, the story of the Bible moves along. Here I am flipping in my Bible. It, it moves along, and, and Abraham, his family ends up in Egypt, and over time, they their welcome wears thin, and the Egyptians enslave them. But God sends Moses and leads them out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They pass through the Red Sea, and they wind up in the land that was promised to the offspring of Abraham. And they set up the kingdom of Israel. And the second king over Israel is this man named David. David is a man after God's own heart. One of the things I... I I said you should know about Abraham is the promises in Genesis chapter 12. Well, one of the things you should know about David is the promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so if you wanted to turn there, you could, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Before I show you these promises, I want to give you just some quick context. In this story, David wants to build a temple for God. And the reason he wants to build this temple in Jerusalem is because David has read his Bible, and he knows that in Deuteronomy chapter 12, the Lord told the people of Israel, look, what's going to happen is uh, you're, you're going to take over this land, you're going to inherit this land, and you're going to set up this kingdom, and I'm going to give you rest from all of your enemies, and when you do that, here's what I want you to do, build a house for my name right there in the place that I tell you to. So what's happened in David's life is he has conquered the Jebusites, he has conquered the Philistines. The Lord has given him rest from his enemies. And so David thinks, because he's read his Bible, now it's time for me to build a house for God in Jerusalem. He wants to build a temple. And God says, no. He says, I haven't needed a house the whole time I've been with you, David. The Lord says, I'm going to let your son Solomon build that. But then the Lord gives David a special promise. I want you to look at the end of verse 9 in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The end of verse 9, uh, the Lord says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. Does that sound familiar? Just as God promised Abraham, I will make your name great, he tells David, hey, I'm going to give you the same thing. I'm going to make your name great. But how will he make his name great? Look at the end of verse 11. It says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord, 
will make you a house. So here's what the Lord says. You won't build my house. I'll build yours. Now, he's not talking about a house of cedar. He's already got one of those. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Davidic dynasty. David's descendants are going to rule on the throne in Jerusalem for centuries after David. And all of those names were recorded in Matthew chapter 1, and we read them really fast. But I want you to see that this isn't just a promise for a, like a, a near future, a couple of centuries, a few hundred centuries kind of thing. That, that's, not, that's not what the promise is only about. It's not just about the near immediate future. It's also about, it's a promise for the far distant future, what, what maybe we could call the forever future. Because look in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That word forever is a key word in this text. Here's what the Lord has said. I'm gonna make your name great, and the way I'm gonna do that is I'm going to ensure that one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. How in the world can the Lord promise this? It's because he's the one in the driver's seat. He has a plan in place, and he knows exactly where he's going. See, God's plan to redeem the world is to replace the curse with a blessing. And, and the blessing comes through Abraham's family, so that because of Abraham, the whole world will inherit a blessing instead of a curse. How can this be? The Lord says to David, I'm going to make your name great, David. There's one coming from your line who's going to sit on your throne forever. Of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Hey, I'm preheating for Christmas. I can't help it. I'm like you people that want to do November 1st Christmas stuff. I can't help it. We're like up to 350 now. Uh, you know, I'm a musician and, and it's really difficult for musicians to not finish a scale. You play every note except the last one. It kind of bothers you a little bit. That's kind of where I'm at at this point. I've got to go ahead and complete this, the scale here because God's plan to save the world was to replace the curse with a blessing by means of a king and a kingdom. And the question remains, who is this king of glory? Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, that's the classic Christmas text, I'm so sorry. Luke chapter 1, verse 31, the angel Gabriel appears to, to Mary like a teenage junior high girl, and he makes this announcement, look what he says beginning in verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Notice the key words. Great. Son. Throne. Kingdom. Forever. David. It's like... 
like the angel Gabriel when he's speaking to Mary, it's almost like he has his Bible open to 2 Samuel chapter 7. See, God made Abraham great. God made David great. Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, is great. God promised Abraham a nation. God promised David that his descendants would rule over and reign over this nation. Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, is enthroned on David's throne over the house of Jacob forever. God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. How can this be? Abraham to David, David to Jesus. You know, the angel Gabriel, he didn't just meet with Mary. In Matthew chapter, I mean, in, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter one, uh, the angel met with Joseph. And he tells Joseph, you're gonna name him Jesus. Why? Because the name Jesus means the Lord saves. He's gonna save his people from their sins. And what we know from the apostles is that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Blessing for all families of the earth. The promises to Abraham are pulled forward and expanded in the promises to David. And King Jesus fulfills those promises by bringing blessing, not curse, bringing blessing, forgiveness, eternal life to any and all who would call upon his name. The one in the driver's seat knows where he is going. There has always been a plan in place. What does that mean for us, though? I'll just give you one thing. Trust in God. Trust in God. Why? Because he's the one in the driver's seat. He knows just where he is going. His way is always the right way. We may be tempted to look at our world and feel like it's out of control. Listen, just because something is out of your control doesn't mean it's out of God's control. You trust in God because he's in control. When should you trust in God? In every circumstance. We go back to the problems that we talked about earlier, global problems. We, we observe all that's wrong in our world that we can do nothing about. We must know that God is trustworthy. We must know that God is moving all of human history toward the end that he has designed. And that end is a new heaven and a new earth where God and man dwell together forever in perfect unity. We should trust in God when we observe the problems in our community. God's in charge of those things too. And by the way, God has placed us in this community. He has placed this church right here on Lake Creek. Across from Round Rock High School, right next to Round Rock Christian Academy, right next to this neighborhood over there, right next to this nightmare of a traffic situation. He has placed us right here in this community to make a difference for his kingdom. Trust in God. Trust in God when you consider your personal situation. Listen to me. 
I'm telling you the truth. No matter what you're walking in, God has a plan for your life. He does. He's the one in the driver's seat. He's the author. He's he's writing a story, a big story, a universal story, a cosmic story, and he's written you into it. Consider this poem. This is The Author by Paul David Tripp. Situation upon situation upon situation. The ever-changing cycle of your story has been authored by another, one of infinite power, unparalleled wisdom, unending grace, who has every epic, every turn of the plot, every surprising mystery, every unnoticed moment written into his book. The author is never surprised, never taken off guard, never confused by new developments, never feeling unprepared, never just making it through, never looking for a way out. Situation upon situation upon situation, the ever-changing cycle of your story, authored by another, the changing saga written by the one who never changes. Let go of knowing the future. Let go of having your own way. Let go of self-sovereignty. Let go of the anxiety of not knowing. Let go of craving more power. Let go of ranting against mystery. Settle into what you've been designed to be. Celebrate being included in the gospel plot. Be thankful that you're not in control. Remember, God's way is better. Know that you're in good hands. Things out of your control are not out of control. There is an author. He is not you. His will will be done. Your story, that ever-changing cycle, situation upon situation, surprise after surprise, mystery chasing mystery, year piling upon year has a final chapter penned before time began written on the pages of eternity and it will be glorious what does it mean for you right now to trust in God at this moment what does it mean stop worrying start praying Stop manipulating the situation and start waiting on God. Stop your anger and be at peace. The author of tomorrow has ordered my steps. He replaces curses with blessings by way of an eternal king whose name is Jesus. And by faith, we can be a part of his everlasting.